Hi, and thank you for joining us for In All Things, a weekly podcast of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. I'm Rachel Joseph. Your host for In All Things is Dean Weaver, State Clerk of the EPC. This week, we present an encore episode from Season 1, when Dean and EPC Chaplain Jennifer Prechter talked about ministry through tragedy, suffering, and grief. We hope that by revisiting this popular episode, you'll be blessed again. Now, here's Dean. Thank you very much, Rachel. I appreciate uh, your introduction as always, and welcome everyone to another edition of In All Things. If you've not been with us before, we encourage you to consider going back and looking at previous episodes of In All Things. We drop every Friday a conversation that's about a half an hour with different things related to the life of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, sometimes interviewing staff, sometimes talking about other leaders in the EPC, pastors, thought leaders, authors, um, different people who have had places of influence. And we have one of those discussions today. Um, We have a discussion today with Jennifer Prechter, who is a chaplain here in the Orlando area at both Arnold Palmer Hospital and helps out in the palliative care units with Children's Hospital as well. And she's going to be talking to us in just a few seconds in a very timely conversation. She and her family attend First Presbyterian Orlando. Technically, Jennifer would be a member of the Presbyteria of Florida and the Caribbean, but is a part of the First Pres family. And she is a chaplain, both serving at the Arnold Palmer Medical Center in downtown Orlando and Children's Hospital, working as a chaplain in palliative care, uh, along with largely the NICU unit, which just absolutely stuns me. Jennifer, welcome to In All Things. Thank you so much for having me, Dean. I'm really excited to be here today. Yes, we ran into each other in the elevator downstairs and we're like, hey, there we are. And we so we started the interview maybe in the conversation in the elevator on our way up here. And there's a lot of things going on right now that we'll get to in a second, because of course, as we're recording this podcast, this horrible tragedy has taken place uh, in Texas where 19 children have been killed, two uh, teachers have been killed. It's just an unthinkable tragedy in Uvalde, Texas. And uh, we're gonna get to that because in the providence of God, the day after this horrific beyond imagination tragedy, we would have one of our own teaching elder chaplains who deals with children and families in palliative care. That just has to be the providence of God that that was scheduled for this very day. So we are going to go there in just a few minutes. But before we do, Jennifer, help us to get to know yourself. Tell us about your background, your family, your calling to the mystery. How did you end up becoming a chaplain working in a NICU unit? How did the Lord call you in that way? That's a big question, but I want to first start by affirming the fact that people may not realize we actually were supposed to do this last week. Oh, so this this was right. on your calendar last week, right. and we both had some schedule conflicts and decided, well, we'll just put it off a week. And so I do really think God's providence, amazing. that um, We would have never even had this conversation, probably. And I feel like it oh, definitely was God's providence. So right. I just want right. to let everyone know that this wasn't supposed to happen this way. God really ordained and worked it out so that I would be here today. So thank you Sen, so much for having me. Yeah, thanks. A little bit of my background. I grew up in Orlando, so I'm a third-generation native, which is pretty unusual. It was my grandfather that moved here, and my dad grew up here. I grew up here, and now my kids are growing up here. The so, typical thing in Florida is everybody is from somewhere, somewhere else, else. No. but you're not. You're I'm actually not. from here. That's, I'm that's from amazing. Here. You're maybe one of the first I've met of that. Yes, it is unusual. That's why I led with that. Okay. What else can I tell you? I have an interesting background in that I grew up in a Jewish family here. My parents divorced when I was a teenager, and my mom became a Christian, and my dad married someone that was more observant in his Judaism. 
my parents had very different faith backgrounds um, and where they ended up, but both of them had strong connections to hospitals. So I wouldn't have ever guessed that as a child that that's where I would end up. Hmm. But um, my mom taught Lamaze, which is natural childbirth for children, um, women having babies. So as a young girl, I often went with her and watched her teach class and saw the pregnant ladies and got to look in the nursery. And for me, as a young girl, I really saw the hospital as a place where women came for their best day, their Mm. happiest day, where they were going to expand their family and beautiful things happened. Um, My father, on the other hand, had a chronic illness. He had multiple sclerosis. So all throughout my childhood, my dad would be hospitalized in and out at least once a year, if not more. But again, the hospital was a very positive and uplifting place. It was a place where he went to get treatment and he came home. Nurses and doctors were kind. They were always welcoming of me as a child. So a lot of formative experiences that were taking place. So when I later in life was called to become a Christian and went to seminary and started thinking about where is God going to use me, it became more and more apparent to me that this is where I was going to be, that hospitals had always been a place of hope and healing, and that that was where my ministry was going to be settled. Not to go deeply into this, but we shy away from conversations around uh, deeper theological conversations like predestination. But when you look back on your life and you see the different experiences that that were there, that formed and shaped you, that, that God not only foreknew but for plan before you could ever even possibly imagine it, that I'm going to place her in these settings, you know, where Lamaz, uh, your father's care, those experiences in the hospital, I'm going to use those to influence and form and shape her as a part of, like he was calling you to do this when you were a little girl and you had no idea and all of those things were lining up to where you are today. Isn't that just stunning? It is stunning for sure. And it really speaks to the fact that many people view hospitals as a very negative place, a frightening place, a place of illness, a place of death. So I have an unusual background. And for me, I've never viewed healthcare that way. And it's always been a place that has been uplifting. I've got to think that that's part of how you're able to do your job well. Like if for you, hospitals were a, a negative place. If hospitals were I would have a, never chose to work there. Right, right, right. And what a gift that is to families going in in such deep pain to find someone who has that view of what the hospital can and should be and brings that to work every day. Well, and for me, I really view the staff as my congregation. Mm-hmm. So as I see myself as a pastor, for me, the patients and families are always changing. But my staff, I've been at the hospital 12 years now. So wow. for me, the staff very much is my congregation. And I get to walk with them in all of the good parts of life. So having children, um, having kids leave for college, getting married, getting divorced, all the regular things that a pastor would watch people witness and walk beside. Um, so I love that part of my job, too. But I would imagine in your setting, too, a lot of the pretense is taken away, right? Sometimes as a pastor, you've got to peel away all of the layers to be able to get down to those core pains and problems and issues of the day. But in the hospital setting, some of that kind of pretense is stripped away, and it's just right there. I mean, people, when you're facing your mortality, it recalibrates how you view things, and you may not dance around something. You may be more open or direct in some regards. Is that fair? Very fair. Again, I sort of see it as I have two different groups of people that I'm ministering to. The staff is, again, unchanging. They're going to be the same over and over. They're sort of my congregation. But I'm a pastor that 
would never be a pastor to these people. Most of them are unchurched. Most of them are people that would never be friends with a pastor or even know a pastor. So I have a unique opportunity to be involved in their lives in ways that Mm. people that would never grace the doors of a church. The families, on the other hand, yes, very much are dealing with life and death questions, are dealing with existential problems of why is this happening? Why is my life changing in this drastic way? Why is this happening to me and my family? What is going to happen? What comes next? What comes after this if things don't go the way I want? So yeah, huge questions that really go right to the heart of what people are really concerned about. And when you say you're a chaplain, they don't hold back. So let's go there a little bit. Let's talk about your work in palliative care, and you're working specifically in the NICU units. Yes, I work both at Winnie Palmer, which is the Women and Baby Hospital, and Arnold Palmer, which is the Children's Hospital. But we have chaplains all throughout both hospitals. For me, I chose to work in palliative care probably in the last five years or so. Could you describe what palliative care is for people just so they understand the difference between end of life or regular chaplaincy? This is a particular niche. So palliative care would be someone who's diagnosed with a chronic illness or a debilitating disease. It could be a fatal anomaly, something that we know that their end of life is likely. Okay. And so palliative care's mission is to enhance their quality of life for the duration that they have. And they do that through looking at total pain. So some of that's physical pain, some of it would be spiritual pain, and making sure that we're meeting all of their needs and that we look at the family as a unit, so not just the person who's diagnosed, but everyone that's going to be involved in the care of the person that has So if you have a child that's diagnosed with uh, an illness that would be um, a chronic or or terminal illness, your care is for that child, but also for the family system. Very much so, because anyone that deals with someone that has a chronic illness knows that everyone is involved, and especially when it's a minor, because you figure they can't take care of themselves. They are reliant upon their parents or their caregivers to bring them to the hospital, to bring them to all the appointments, to make sure that, and they're going to come in and out of the hospital frequently. So sometimes they're known as frequent flyers at the hospital and that we see them, we see them often and we get to know them and their families very well, which is one of the things that drew me to palliative care was that you really would establish relationships with people that would be longer than someone who just comes in for a short stay and then goes home. Right. Okay. And of course, relationships are the key, right? In order to be a real pastor to those people and care for them, you have to have established some kind of a relationship. You have longer and deeper opportunities, which I really love about my job. So let's go back to those questions that they're asking, those big, deep questions. How do you how do you handle those? What's your approach to when someone asks, of course, the biggest question of all is, is always that question of why is there suffering? Why is this happening to us? Like, like, where is God in the midst of all of our pain? How do you handle those really bigger than big questions? The answer for a chaplain is very different than maybe one that a pastor would give. So um, as a chaplain, my role really is to discover what is going to bring them comfort and what is going to bring them hope. And so for me, most of the time, I try not to answer Mm. and that I'm not supposed to supply what the answer is and that I'm going to ask them, well, why are you asking me that question? What is it your fear that you're worried about? What is it your concern? Where is that rooted? Tell me more about why you're thinking about this or wondering what's going to happen next. When you think about death, what does that mean for you? Uh, What is your background? What has in the past been important to you? So it's a lot more asking questions than answering them, which is where a pastor maybe has a little bit more of the ability to 
give more answers because I think the scriptures do give us answers. And so when push comes to shove, yes, I will answer. And I always love to talk about the gospel. But in my role as a chaplain, it's more to help the person to be reflective Mm. and to think through what um, they're really asking. Well, to affirm some of that, number one, I'm sure that involves being a good listener. Very much so. And that's, that's step number one. But also, you know, the ability to answer a question with an an even more precise or more directive question that kind of points them back to something that's more core seems positively Jesus-like. You know, that's, that's a rabbinic tradition of, of, of asking questions of learners because it helps them to actually um, own the answer rather than have it delivered to them, which in their grief probably doesn't ever take any root whatsoever. They have to kind of unfortunately go to that hard place uh, to find. You don't find that God is truly present with you unless you've gone through the valleys and the shadows. When you go through the valleys and the shadows, that truth is, is experienced in a way that makes it go from head to heart. And so, you know, that sounds like exactly where Jesus would be in a place like that. Yes, I do think that's very true. And I think if you give someone the answer and it's not theirs, it's just yours, it's not going to go from their head to their heart. And I think we have to acknowledge that sometimes there aren't answers. Sometimes there's just tragic things that happen that, that you sit back and you go, I don't understand, Lord. I don't understand why this is happening. And I just need you to be present with me because this is awful. Yeah. So, so what, what counsel would you give, uh, Jennifer, to pastors then? Because I think sometimes pastors come in to a situation like that and kind of parachute in. And I'm, you know, I'm 35 years a pastor. I've visited lots of hospitals, lots of places where there's been pain and, and death. And it's just, you know, I've had 35 years of hundreds of funerals. I think sometimes from my tribe, we could parachute in read a couple of Bible verses and pray with people and then walk out the door again and sort of check that off our list in terms of, I visited that person today. What, what counsel would you give? And I don't mean to be too harsh because I know there's And I was going to say, I don't want to minimize that because as a chaplain, I'm thrilled when a pastor comes in, when a pastor cares for their sheep in that way and that they're really there because that makes a big difference to people in the hospital. When someone shows up, that matters. So don't minimize that, okay. that that's, that's still important. My husband jokes that I, to become a chaplain, you have to do 1,600 hours of educational training. I usually say it's like a master's degree beyond your master's degree, and then mm-hmm. you're getting a master's degree in chaplaincy. But they teach you a lot during that time, and there's a lot of reflective work that happens. But some of the things I joke with my husband about what to do is that you want to talk about half as much. So however much they're talking, they should hear you speak about half the amount. And that our clinical training, we actually would write out sort of in play form or a script. And so you write out, they said this, I said this, they said this, I said this. That's part of your training as a chaplain. And so when your evaluator is looking at it, they want to see are there more, if they have four sentences, you should have only said two. Mm. If they had one sentence, you should have gone, hmm. That sounds mm, like good advice for mm, a podcast host. Mm, <laughs> you know? Again, so there's a lot of listening, like yeah. you said. I think you're right in saying pastors need to be careful to not give easy answers. Yeah. That's important. And I think the bottom line is, like I said, showing up. They want, they want someone to hold their hand and to say it's okay to cry and to say that this is awful and to just be with them. Yeah. 
we had a, um, a retreat recently for pastors and their spouses and, um, Jim and Sherry hobby who are uh, Jim is a Bishop in the Anglican church and Jim and Sherry are good friends of Beth and mine. And I just love them deeply. And they came in and ministered to our pastors and their spouses from Psalm 13. And it's a lament Psalm that has six verses, three strophes, one and two, three and four, five and six. And one and two is four times how long, how long, how long, how long. It's just this perpetual desiring lament, this, this hurt, deep, deep hurt. The second stanza asks questions and starts to point back to uh, the source of our help, but doesn't really come to any conclusions. And the, the final two verses have a sense of victory and hope in trusting in the Lord who is going to deliver us from all of what the psalmist is expressing. Jim and Sherry's counsel to us was when you go to a hospital room to visit, you ask yourself the question, is this person in verses one and two? Are they in verses three and four or verses five and six? The pastors typically want to jump to, hey, you've got hope in the resurrection. I'm going to pray for you for healing. And that person may be saying, but I just want to go and be with Jesus. I'm ready. And you're trying to get them healed. And they maybe are looking for the ultimate healing, not the temporal healing. It's fantastic advice. Yeah. Essentially, it means you need to read the room. Yeah, right. And sometimes when you go in with a preconceived notion of this is what they want me to bring. And so I'm bringing what I think they want me to bring because I'm their pastor. You may not read the room well. And so I think that's really great advice of where they are in that psalm, because sometimes they're just in the lament. So pastors, if you're listening in, take this from Jennifer. As you are coming into that room, number one, thank you for being there. And number two, take a prayerful moment to read the room. And you'll be an even better pastor to that family as you enter into that space. So that's, that was worth the price of admission just for today, right? So, Jennifer, let's go there. This is a hard topic, but, of course, we just had this uh, horrible shooting that's taking place in Uvalde, Texas. I can't even wrap my brain around it. I was telling you on the elevator on the way up, I, I watch it on the news for five or ten minutes, and then I have to turn it off because it just I, I just have a hard time going there to process. And then, of course, this comes right on the heel of the shooting in Buffalo, New York, and having pastored in Buffalo for 11 years and knowing Jefferson Avenue community, having spent a great deal of time there, having a personal connection to one of the people that was killed tragically. It's just, you know, I just feel like another body blow, you know, a body blow and a body blow and a body blow. And I'm, there's a part of me that feels like I want to shut down. I just want to, I want to, you know, post something on social media and then get off of social media and then push my arm's length away and just get my head down back into my life and not feel because it's too overwhelming. As someone who helps families who in palliative care, working with, with little children who are dealing with this, this horrific change of what is unimaginable, how do you, how should we, well, let's, let's, let's start with the average person listening. What counsel would you give us? How should we approach these kind of events, these kind of tragedies? What counsel could you give us to help us process them well as followers of Jesus so that we don't shut down and keep everything at arm's length and, and get kind of callous to these, these, these tragedies? I think like we talked about, there, there is evil, and we have a sense that we want to just retreat into our churches where there is a resurrection and a hope, and we don't want to look at the evil that's still here. 
I love my pastor, David Swanson, and he recently was talking about this in church, that we have really had this beautiful manifestation of the kingdom that has happened on the cross. And we focus on that on Easter, but sometimes we forget there's more to come. We are, we are longing for what's to come. And so when you see that we're in a broken world, you remember, yes, we've had the resurrection and the hope, but there is more to come. And so you long for the kingdom. You long for um, restoration where children won't die, where sickness won't be um, there, where there won't be any more tears, where some of these things will happen. And so for me, yes, I question, why, why, Lord, have you allowed all these children to die? Because it is unthinkable. Um, and then longing of Lord, come, heal our hearts, be with us here in this current age, and help us to look forward to the future where it won't be this way, where there will be hope and there will be justice and there will be a time when, it, when evil won't reign. Could we, could we go dig a little deeper in this idea of longing, mm-hmm. if we could? I don't think we linger there. I think we try to get over that to some kind of resolution too quickly and we don't give ourselves the time and the space to actually but longing has a huge place in our emotional development and processing things spiritually and intellectually and everything i was just listening to a podcast recently a carrie newhoff podcast where he was interviewing uh, susan kane who talks about longing it's one of her famous ted talks and she points to c.s lewis and where lewis remarks that longing actually points us to our belonging to a kind of a greater country. Like, for example, in Narnia, the Pevensey children have this longing to see Aslan or get back to Narnia, but there was this, what was right about that was that there was something beyond where we are in our fallenness, our brokenness, that beckons us, that, that we feel this, this gap, and we, and we press into that space tragedies like this, the kind of grief you experience uh, as families come to grips with a loved one who's struggling with a, maybe a terminal or chronic illness, how, how, does, how does longing enter in to our own ways in which we maybe need to stay there and process some of this? As you, as you come alongside of a family, uh, how, do you, how do you handle, how do you pastor that sense of longing? For me, as a person, I really like to fix things. Yeah. And chaplaincy really encourages me not to do that. That's um, a that's a good force discipline, isn't it? It is a good force discipline. Yeah. You know, the Lord tells us to be still and know that I am Lord. That stillness is where that longing sits, where you sit with the Lord and you say, I wish it wasn't this way mm. and be mm. with me. Mm. And and I'm just gonna sit here and say this is awful. And I don't have to fix it. I don't have to understand it. And as you said, it's easy to rush by and turn off the news and not think about it. But there are times when you just sit and lament, I wish the world wasn't this way and I long for the future when it won't be and be with me and comfort me in this time without answers, but knowing that there is hope. You just opened the door to lament. How does that play a role in processing grief like this? And What's your experience with that and helping people in palliative care? My experience is most people are very uncomfortable with grief because grief is very messy. You mentioned having five stages. I would say mm, that, that could be helpful, but really there's not a straight line. Grief isn't linear. You, right. you don't go through stages. You kind of bounce all over the place. It's, it's just messy, right. which is why we tend to not want to be 
lamenting. And we're not in control, right? Right. We're well, completely we're not in control. we're bouncing all over the place in the middle of that mess, it feels like so out of control and we desperately want to be in control. When my father passed, my uncle said to me, I asked him, I said, you know, you've already lost your parents. How do I do this? I, I don't know how to lose my father. I don't know how to get through this. I was looking to him for sage wisdom. And what he said to me was, Jennifer, you just muddle through. Mm. And I thought, wow, that is, you know, when I think about grief, that is just the word. You just muddle through. There is no. And it's okay um, to do that. And it's okay to do give that. There's no permission to give yourself through. permission to muddle through, to know that there's no way, to, right or wrong way to do it. As pastors, remember that it's okay to let people cry. It's okay to let grief out. It actually is more harmful to hold it in because it always comes out. It comes out in other ways if it doesn't come out in tears. So allowing people to sit in the lament, allowing people to muddle through, reminding them that they're not doing it wrong, that there's no right way to do it. We all fight against death. We fight against our mortality. It's hard to understand and to hold, and certainly even more so when it comes out of order, Mm -hmm. which is what we're talking about today. Right. So when children die before their parents, it is, it is out of order. And so it, it fights against everything that we understand. Mortality is hard enough to swallow, knowing that none of us will be here and eventually we all have to die. But thinking that it would go in the wrong order and that a child would go first is hard for us to even yeah, imagine. That's super, super um, profound. And today, you know, when we're talking about this tragedy, this isn't even a chronic illness. This is something that instantly these parents' lives have changed. Yeah. And that that is extremely hard. And that disorientation. It's just very disorienting. Causes, shock. Yeah. Shock, awe of this can't be my life. This can't be happening. Right. So, yes, pastors need to just allow that messiness. And that's really hard because we do all want to fix it. I'm a Lord of the Rings fan, and uh, I was uh, recently watching the extended versions of the original three. And in the two towers, there's this great line king theoden has lots of great lines i mean i know someone who actually posts every thursday he calls it theoden thursday where he posts <laughs> some great line from king theoden but he has this line um after the the funeral of his son and it's it's very simple but it's elegant in its simplicity is he, he just crying and he looks at gandalf and he says no parent should have to bury their child and i think that speaks to this that's not the order that's not the way this is supposed to go there's an unrightness to this that, that both triggers that sense of longing for something different, but also this lament to cries out to God and says, this is not right. And, and maybe if that's all we do, maybe if it's just a two-point sermon today, Jennifer, and it's longing and lament, that's what we needed to hear in terms of how we begin to process something that is just seemingly overwhelmingly unprocessable. Very much so. I think that that would be a great place to give people just those two things. The other thing with grief is that often grieving people won't ask for what they need. They, they're too overwhelmed in their grief to even know what they need. And so often we will say to people, what can I do or how can I help? And, and sometimes they just they can't give an answer. It's just too difficult. And so another thing I encourage people to do is offer something. Can I bring you a meal? Might I help you with laundry? Has anyone cut your grass? Could I do that for you? Would that be helpful? Could I pick the kids up from school? Just things where you're offering rather than making the person come up with something of how you can serve them. That can be helpful too. Again, because grief is messy, so they don't even know what they need. You suggesting, could I do this for you? Would it be helpful? Sometimes is really a good thing too. And it meets our own need of helplessness, <laughs> that, that we want to do something, right. but we don't know what to do. 
the other thing I encourage people to do is to acknowledge the loss. It's really easy, like you said, to sweep it under the rug. And so seeing someone, people will often say, well, should I bring it up? What if I make the person sad by, it's been a month, I haven't seen them, they've had a real big loss in their life, should I say something? Well, that person's still grieving. You bringing it up isn't going to make or change their loss. And so I always encourage people too to say, I'm so sorry for your loss. I'm so sorry I haven't seen you since then. Know that I'm thinking of you or I'm praying for you. But acknowledging that because there's a real awkwardness around grief that we we don't want to be around it. But talking or not talking about it, I should say, doesn't make it go away. So I always encourage people too that even when you say, like in this instance, I don't know what to say. It's so awful. I don't know what to say to you. But I want you to know, I know it's awful, and I I wish it was otherwise. And I'm with you. And I'm with you, you know. And there are no words. I can't come up with the right words, and I know I can't. They're inadequate. That's really a problem for a pastor. We'd like to come up with words. But you don't have to. Really, sometimes just acknowledging the pain and the hurt and the loss is enough. And it's okay to say, I don't have the words. Sometimes that's perfect. Charles Swindoll had a saying. He said, it's the gift of not saying it. And that's sometimes where we land. Well, Jennifer, you've been so uh, incredibly helpful today. I think your counsel would be great wisdom for us on any occasion. But given where we are as a nation right now, after the shootings in Buffalo and now in Texas, uh, and we're all trying to process this just so timely and so helpful. And I appreciate it so much. And I hope we could have you back for more of a conversation because I feel like we could talk for another hour and we wouldn't even scratch the surface. So um, we're going to try to get you back in here to have a part two of this maybe before too long. I would love that, Dean. Thank you so much for having me today. You are easy to talk to, and I I am glad to be here. Thank you, Jennifer. I appreciate it. So I hope, friends, that you not only appreciated this episode, but I hope, and I say this frequently, but especially I'm going to say this today, I hope you will share this episode. And I don't say that so that we can get more numbers. I say that so that it can help people. I really think Jennifer's wisdom today would be a blessing to so many people, whether it's someone in your life who's dealing with palliative issues or end-of-life issues or just dealing with the tragedies that we're all dealing with on a national scale. I think these words are a balm for our souls, and I hope you'll share this. You'll encourage others to listen to it. My hope is that a couple weeks from now, we'll look at the numbers and find this is one of our most listened to podcasts because of how incredibly helpful it is. So thank you, Jennifer. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. My friends, we end with the good word that is from God's word as we do every time because it really uh, puts all of these things in perspective. You see, the sun is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things, all things hold together for he is the head of the body of the church. My friends, that is our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. It's in his name that I bid grace and peace to you until the next time. Thank you again for joining us on behalf of Dean and the entire team. We hope you will join us for our next episode of in all things for more information about the evangelical Presbyterian church, including a directory of local churches, online resources, and much more visit our website at www.epc.org. I'm Rachel Joseph. I pray you have an overwhelming sense of God's presence in all things today. <music>